Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the MLK Tapes, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. Listener discretion is advised. It was about seven o'clock in the evening. I got a teletype. It was from the Memphis field office, and all it said was, Martin Luther King has been shot while standing on a balcony in a hotel in Memphis. That was it. That was the whole message. And I called Hoover at home. I didn't want him to hear it over the news. I called him and I said, Mr. Hoover, I just got a telex message from our Memphis office. said that Martin Luther King was shot while standing on a balcony in that city. And then there was this pause. And his reaction to me was, is he dead? I called the Union Hall. I said, it's a matter of life and death. I said, I think these people are planning to kill Dr. King. The authorities would parade, oh, we found a gun that James Earl Ray bought in Birmingham that killed Dr. King. Except it wasn't the gun that killed Dr. King. James Earl Ray was a pawn for the official story. From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The plan was to get King to the city because they wanted it handled in Memphis where Daddy and them could handle it. And I have lived with it so long, my children, they, they scared for me. The Lord told me to not to worry. I've been wanting to tell it all my life. I'm Bill Kleber, and this is the MLK Tapes. In the 1960s, as the FBI was making life as difficult as it could for Martin Luther King, its director, J. Edgar Hoover, was living the sweet life in upscale restaurants and five-star hotels. The Waldorf Astoria in New York, and exclusive resorts in Florida and California. And Hoover didn't go to these places alone. In virtually every instance, he was accompanied by a second-in-command, Clyde Tolson. So who was Tolson? When did he arrive? And what was the deal there? To help with this, we recently spoke with author Philip Nelson, whose excellent book, Who Really Killed Martin Luther King, was published just three years ago. Clyde Tolson grew up in a small town in Missouri. After public schooling, he attended George Washington University, 
where he received a law degree in 1927. The next year, he applied for a job with the Bureau of Investigation, where J. Edgar Hoover was boss. Apparently, Hoover already knew Tolson. In any case, Tolson was hired, and only two years later, in 1930, he rose to the position of assistant director of the Bureau, which became the FBI in 1933, with Tolson as Hoover's number two, a position he held until Hoover died in 1972. It is widely assumed that Hoover and Tolson were lovers. For 40 years, they lived in what appeared to be a spousal relationship. Tolson maintained an apartment near to where Hoover lived. The two men were driven to and from work every day in the same car, and they ate all their meals together. Hoover and Tolson had lunch every day in the rib room in the Mayflower Hotel. They didn't pay for their food or drinks. For dinner, most evenings, they would eat at Harvey's restaurant, where they were also comped at great expense to the owners, something that was never reported to the IRS. And it wasn't just a workday relationship. For many years, Hoover and Tolson went on extended vacations together. In the winter, they would go for weeks at a time to the Gulf Stream Hotel in Miami, and in the summer, it would be the Del Chero Hotel in California. At neither place did they pay for room or board. All travel, either by rail or by air, was billed to their government expense account under the pretense that they were on official business, inspecting FBI field offices. But they did nothing of the kind. Instead, they spent all of their time either at the local racetrack or lounging around the hotel swimming pool. The Del Charo Hotel in La Jolla, California, where Hoover and Tolson went each summer, was a high-end resort owned by oil baron Clint Murchison. According to the history website Gibson's World, quote, the hotel was frequented by guests such as mobsters Meyer Lansky, Carlos Marcello, Johnny Rosselli, and Sam Giancana, along with politicos such as Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and J. Edgar Hoover with his partner Clyde Tolson. Murchison gained control of the nearby Del Mar racetrack where Hoover was set up with his own private box. So the head of our national police force, who by reputation was the very personification of thrift and honesty, was in real life something entirely different. And while the FBI was good at chasing down bank robbers and car thieves, and quite keen on raising the alarm about communists said to be hiding in the chambers of government, it didn't do a thing against organized crime, which decade after decade became a stronger force in the American landscape. One would have thought that the head of the National Police Force would have been eager to take on organized crime. But Hoover wasn't. Moreover, he said publicly that organized crime didn't really exist in America. What could be the explanation for this? According to Bill Pepper, mobster Meyer Lansky, who was basically running things at the Gulfstream Hotel, was pulling the strings here. Meyer set that up. Meyer uh, instructed Costello who had a suite at the Waldorf Astoria, as did Hoover, to go visit Hoover and to show him photographs of him in sexual activity with Tolson and put the photographs on a table and say to him, well, you can have a, a wonderful life, Edgar, or we can release these. Well, Hoover, being the coward that he was, had no choice in his own mind when Frank Costello confronted him, and he agreed then that 
he would do what they required. And what they required was that the mob didn't exist. He just sold out to them entirely. The story of Meyer Lansky bringing Hoover on board is best described in Anthony Summers' book, The Secret Life of J. Edgar Hoover. According to Summers' sources, Lansky had Hoover in his control because he had photographs of him engaging in sex with Tolson and other men. I don't know if this is true, but it's not an outrageous idea. As we heard earlier, Hoover was happy to bug every hotel room that Martin Luther King stayed in. So how hard would it have been for someone to do that to him? In the 40s and 50s, when Hoover and Tolson were staying for extended periods of time without charge in mob-connected hotels, once Lansky or anyone else had those photographs, he would virtually own the director of the FBI. And there was little in Hoover's actions over the years to say that wasn't the case. He just didn't go after the mob. To be sure, there are other possible reasons for Hoover's reluctance to act against organized crime. Arresting and convicting a mobster would be a lot more work than what was required to bring down a car thief. Mobsters could afford good lawyers, and when scary guys were put on trial, juries were more likely to end up undecided. And Hoover was particularly proud of the Bureau's conviction rate. And along with that, it probably felt pretty good getting tips on horse races from people on the inside and hanging around the pool with film stars and gangsters, being treated like a celebrity and paying for none of it. Of course, the people offering the free stuff were most likely expecting something in return. So was Hoover being blackmailed? Or was he simply corrupted? And which is worse? Besides living the good life with Hoover when they were off duty, one might wonder what Tolson's responsibilities were inside the FBI as the second in command. Quite simply, it was to protect Hoover from any threat, real or imagined, that might arise within the Bureau or without. Tolson was not only a second pair of eyes and ears, he had his own informants, a reputation for being mean, and he might end a man's career over nothing just to show others that he could do it. In short, he was Hoover's hatchet man, and everyone was afraid of him because he was sitting on the right hand of God. But beyond that, Tolson gave Hoover a way to get things done that didn't have to be recorded in an order or a memo. He could run important errands for Hoover, errands that were completely off the books. And it appears that's what Tolson was doing when he becomes part of our story by showing up in Memphis. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, 
take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. First time I ever met him was uh, out at the Memphis airport, but it was a little old airport, you know. I mean, they didn't have 747s dropping in and, and all that. And uh, we went on out there and uh, picked him up at the airport. In previous episodes, we have heard from Ronnie Lee Atkins, who was only 16 years old when King was murdered. Atkins lived in Memphis and was privy to many discussions about the need to kill King because he was a son of Russell Atkins Sr., the man who led many of these meetings. Atkins Sr. was a man of influence in Memphis, and beyond that, he had a special friend in Washington who would visit every so often. He was a big connection with Daddy. I mean, he, uh, you know, he, he used Daddy and gave Daddy money to do different things, you know, and, uh, but he was there, you know, two or three times a year, maybe four or five times a year, and he'd call and, you know, Daddy would go get him and, you know, in a cab or, I was told, you call him Uncle Clyde. I said, yes, sir. Well, from then on, he was Uncle Clyde. So who was this man who would fly in from Washington? The man who Ronnie Lee Atkins was told to call Uncle Clyde. It was Clyde Tolson, Hoover's second-in-command. This is Bill Pepper. Hoover used to send in uh, Tolson on a regular basis to meet with Adkin, the Atkins family, the Dixie Mafia people. Dixie Mafia people were junior cousins of the of the, the Marcello organization, but they worked together. They were closely. When uh, Marcello might might not have wanted something to happen, but it had to happen, they would have used the uh, the Atkins family to do this. And what what surprised me was the the extent to which he used Clyde Tolson, who was his number two, as the messenger always. For as long as Atkins could remember, Clyde Tolson would visit his house a couple times a year. When Atkins gave his deposition to Bill Pepper, he brought several backyard photographs of himself and Tolson, which you can check out on our website. Hey, it's Clyde, me, and a um, kid lived across the street. All right, all right, and you would have been how old here, seven? Mm, yeah, probably six, seven. Okay, so this then would have been 58 or 59. Yes, sir. Photograph. What we learn from these photos is that Tolson and Ronnie Lee's father, Russell Sr., 
had a relationship that went back for years. And part of what would happen on some of these visits is that Tolson would bring cash money for Russell Sr. to pass along to those on the off-the-books payroll. Came directly from Clyde Tolson to my father's hand in a brown bag or a suit, or a, kind of like a doctor's bag. I have seen Clyde Tolson open the bag up and pull his papers out and take the money out. And it was usually in a bag. You know, and then daddy would open a sack up and pull the money out, and then they'd go to counting, and they'd both count. Yeah, I mean, you know, they'd, you know, one potato, two potato, three potato, four. That's why they did it. Pepper then asked Atkins if he knew how much money changed hands. I had no idea. I wish I'd seen, you know, a good chunk of it, but it just didn't happen. I got allowances pretty good, though. Um, you know, I'd get some Bedley washers and peanuts and stuff when I, uh, when I wanted. So Tolson would bring money to Atkins, who, as we discovered in an earlier episode, was a leader in the Dixie Mafia. As Atkins said, Tolson would use his father and give his father money to do different things. This arrangement gave Hoover players on the board who were not G-men and who could do things and not have to make reports. As Atkins would describe, there had often been talk about killing King at various Klan and Mason meetings going back into the 1950s. But after King's 1963 March on Washington and his award of the Nobel Prize in 1964, the talk took on a sense of urgency. More ideas were floated about how it could be done. And if you've come with us this far, you've heard how Ronnie Lee described the general plan. But we play his words here another time because they are important words. The plan was to disrupt the city because they was going to get King to the city because Tolson said that they wanted it handled in Memphis where Daddy and them could handle it, where specifically Daddy and them could handle it. So the workers would get King to town, is what it all boiled down to. And by getting him to town, then they was going to take care of him. So apparently he come down from Hoover. You know, I don't think Clyde was doing that on his own. So this was the deal as 14-year-old Ronnie Lee Atkins understood it. But the working relationship between Tolson and Russell Sr. was derailed when Tolson suffered a stroke in 1966 and Atkins Sr. died a year later. But according to Ronnie Lee, the plotting kept on under new leadership, the part of his father assumed by his 36-year-old half-brother, Russell Jr., and the role of Tolson picked up by veteran FBI agent Frank Holloman, who would become the next head of fire and police in Memphis just a few months before King was killed. What follows is Bill Pepper questioning Ronnie Lee Atkins, who is testifying under oath with his lawyer, Stephen Tolan, sitting close by. We're into 1968. The uh, sanitation workers strike hits. Yes, sir. Daddy's dead. Uh, your father's dead. Right. Who's taken over the... Uh, Russell Jr. and Holloman. So Russell Jr. and Frank Holloman are running uh, the assassination effort. Yes, sir. Do you know how long your father knew Holloman? <clears throat> I don't know. He knew Frank a pretty good while. Uh, Is it know. possible, because Holloman, of course, ran Hoover's office in, uh, for a number of years. Yes, sir. Is it possible that Holloman introduced Tolson to your father? I think that Tolson introduced Frank to daddy. I think that's how that happened. You think it worked the other way around? I think Tolson's the one that put daddy with Frank. Because Frank ran this office here for years. Frank Holloman had joined the FBI right out of law school in 1937. 
He worked hard and found favor with Director Hoover, and for seven years in the 1950s was the man who ran Hoover's office in Washington. Then he left for important posts in the field, becoming the agent in charge in Atlanta, and then continuing on to Memphis, which is what Atkins was referring to when he said he had run this office for years. And this is important because Frank Holloman was no stranger to Memphis when he became the director of fire and police. He already knew who everybody was and what they were up to. And according to Atkins, Holloman was an important part of what they were up to. What was said? Anything significant said at any of these? I heard Frank Holloman tell Russell Jr., I want the son of a bitch shot, shoot the son of a bitch in the mouth. Holloman say that? I heard that at Berkeley Baptist Church in a meeting. And do you remember when that meeting was? That was probably less than two weeks before they killed him. As we saw in the previous segment, in the week before King was killed, the FBI had composed a nasty article to be secretly released to friendly news outlets that attacked King for staying at a posh, white-owned hotel in Memphis, when there was a perfectly good black-owned hotel, the Lorraine, where he could stay if he was willing to patronize black-owned businesses, as he was telling his followers to do. Why did the FBI care where King stayed in Memphis? This was an easy question for Ronnie Lee Atkins. I think they had it set up for him to stay at the Lorraine ahead of time because they were set up to work out of Jowers' place. Now, whether or not they were going to hit him from the window, I don't know. I don't think so. I think they were going to try to hit him from the fire station at first. As far as those firemen, uh, I know that they had some moved. My brother had talked to somebody, and I think it was Holloman about having them moved, and I think it was Holloman that came up with the idea, if there's a threat, if we can show some kind of a threat, we could have them moved. And I think that's what they used was a threat. As Adkins relates, the first idea was to shoot King from some position at the firehouse. But even with the black firemen removed, there were too many people there to assure privacy at the back window but the brush-covered yard behind Jim's grill had promise. So who made the call? Atkins said it was his brother Russell Jr. and Frank Holloman. Where it came down to hitting him from, from behind the, the grill, I don't know if he would ever was down there after that, but man, there was a ton of shit back there. So it was the perfect place. The angle wasn't right. They needed him up where he was level with them at least. The angle wasn't right, and that would explain the sudden need for a room change. King had been successfully booked into the Lorraine Motel where an ambush awaited, but he'd been booked into room 202 on the ground floor. From the firehouse, a man standing outside room 202 might have been a decent target, but not from the yard behind Jower's grill. If the shooter were back far enough to be covered by the brush, the hill itself would hide the rooms on the ground floor. This problem was apparently recognized a day or so before King was to arrive, and there was a rushed effort to get King into another room, preferably on the second floor across from the yard behind Jower's grill. So there it is. King was moved to room 306. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, to live and die in L.A. 
I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Martin Luther King was shot in Memphis at six in the evening. Almost instantly, the news appeared on the FBI teletype. But in Washington, it was a little after seven, and most people had already left. But Paul Letursky, a young man who was serving as Hoover's personal assistant, was still there. He saw the teletype come in, ripped it from the machine, and headed for the phone. I called Hoover at home. I didn't want him to hear it over the news. I called him and I said, Mr. Hoover, I just got a telex message from our Memphis office. Uh, said that Martin Luther King was shot while standing on a balcony in that city. And then there was this pause and his immediate reaction to me was, is he dead? And I said, I don't know. All I have is the fact that he was shot. And then I asked him if he would like me to connect him with the head of the uh, Memphis office, and he said, yeah, do that. Then there was another slight delay, and he said to me, I hope the son of a bitch doesn't die, because if he does, they'll make a martyr out of him. Those were his exact words, and I'll never forget it. So do Hoover's words upon hearing the news about King reveal anything to us? Paul Letursky, who just came out with a book about his years in the FBI titled The Director, was pretty clear with me that he thought Hoover's words should remove him from any suspicion about the murder. I was surprised because I didn't hear it that way. So I played the clip for a friend, and he said something similar, that a man who hopes another man doesn't die 
isn't the one we should suspect of killing him. And that makes sense if you don't mind being overly literal with Hoover's words. Seen another way, if Hoover had played any part in the killing of King, however passive, he would have had time to reflect on possible, unfortunate side effects, such as even in death King would best him, as he clearly has done. So of course Hoover might say what he said about King becoming a martyr. But regardless of which way you think his words point, there can be no dispute about the hatred you can hear in them. At about the same time that Latursky was on the phone with his boss, Hoover, John Curington was on the phone with his boss, H.L. Hunt. Mr. Hunt, he called me, I would say, within less than 10 minutes after Martin Luther King was killed there in, in uh, Memphis there, and told me to call every radio station in the United States or everywhere that Lifeline was broadcast. We were also in Mexico and at that time, Hawaii, and have them not to do the program on uh, Martin Luther King. We were doing a very derogatory series of stories on Martin Luther King, most of which had come through J. Edgar Hoover. Over a period of time of about two hours, we were able to call all the radio stations. As soon as Curington had accomplished this task, Hunt had another. He wanted to go into hiding. His views on King were well known, and he didn't feel safe in his home. He asked Curington to arrange for travel and lodging under an assumed name. So under the names of Mr. and Mrs. John Curington, Hunt and his wife Ruth flew out to El Paso and checked into a hotel. But first thing Monday, a call came into Hunt's Dallas office, someone wanting to speak to the absent Mr. Hunt. J. Edgar Hoover called, I'd say about 9 or 9.30 on a Monday morning, after the death of uh, Martin Luther King on Friday and asked for Mr. Hunt. And the switchboard uh, advised Mr. Hoover that Mr. Hunt was out of town. At that time, Mr. Hunt asked our switchboard operator if, if John was in. And as far as I know, he never knew my last name. But anyway, I got on the phone and uh, Hoover asked where Mr. Hunt was. I told him. He asked if I could get a hold of him and asked him if he would come to Washington. I told him, yes, I could. According to Curington, he called Hunt and told him that Hoover not only wanted to talk to him, but wanted to do the talking in person. Would Hunt travel to Washington? Hunt said yes, and Curington again made the reservations under another name. Hunt flew to Washington and stayed for a couple of days. In our previous episode, we heard attorney John Curington describe how one day out of the blue, he was selected to be H.L. Hunt's personal assistant, a position he held for 12 years. Hunt was an extremely wealthy Texas oilman, often called the richest man in America. As Curington tells us, Hunt was a longtime supporter of Lyndon Johnson and also had an ongoing alliance with J. Edgar Hoover. Mr. Hunt felt like he could do certain things for J. Edgar Hoover that Hoover couldn't do for himself. But more important, Mr. Hunt believed that J. Edgar Hoover could furnish him information that he could use in his business activities. What activities? As we've heard, Mr. Hunt produced a radio program called Lifeline that was designed to advance his rather extreme political views. It was only 15 minutes in length, but a new show came out every day, six days a week, and was carried by over 500 radio stations across the country. The program did a lot of derogatory comments on 
Martin Luther King, J. Edgar Hoover, kept a personal file on them. And we were privileged to a lot of that information in those files that was redrafted and rewritten and used in Lifeline programs. As Curington would reveal, Hoover and Hunt would have brief conversations on the phone maybe once a month. It was a romance of sorts. Hunt had wealth, Hoover had power, and they shared a deep hatred of Martin Luther King. According to Curington, Hunt felt sure that he could destroy King with his radio program. Mr. Hunt was under the impression that the message against Martin Luther King that Lifeline could deliver would eventually attract somebody or someone or some group that would see that uh, Martin Luther King was removed from power. Hoover, according to Curington, was less certain than Hunt that Lifeline alone could achieve this, but he was willing to help. So J. Edgar Hoover, the nation's top lawman, broke the law continuously by secretly giving to Hunt material on King that Hunt could turn around and use on his radio programs. When President John Kennedy was murdered, Attorney General Robert Kennedy lost all control over the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover. And the new president, Lyndon Johnson, apparently had no desire to shield King from Hoover, though he and King, for a time, maintained an outwardly friendly relationship. But in private, Johnson's real feelings would surface, and Currington was privy to some of it. I've never heard such vile language as Lyndon Johnson used in describing his feeling for Martin Luther King. So for the public, they were accepted as very close friends, all both looking out for each other. But I don't know of anybody that Lyndon Johnson had a more dislike for than Martin Luther King. And the same thing with J. Edgar Hoover. When Hoover invited Hunt to come to Washington right after King had been killed, it allowed for more private and personal conversations than either man was willing to have on the phone. Curington wasn't privy to any of that. I have no earthly idea what they talked about, but I believe that J. Edgar Hoover, H.L. Hunt, and Lyndon Johnson were putting themselves into a holding pattern where if anything did surface that would suggest they had advanced knowledge of this, they wanted to have as clean a path as possible of course, a totally clean path was hard to be certain of because the alleged killer of Dr. King had not been captured, and no one could be sure what he might reveal once he was, assuming he was captured alive. At that time, H.L. Hunt and Joe Savillo, the powerful mafia boss, both lived in Dallas. The two men were not what you would call friends, but they shared a respect, stayed out of each other's business, and once in a while might meet at Savillo's place out at the airport, where, according to Currington, Savillo might offer a short lesson on how to get away with murder. Savillo's, in comments to Mr. Hunt, told him that, you know, hiring somebody to kill someone was no problem at all, but immediately after that killing was done, you either had to, one, destroy the person who did the killing, or if the man got indicted, you had to make arrangements that that man pled guilty so he could not testify in open court as to what he knew or did not know on a particular crime there. Two months after King's murder, James Earl Ray was captured in London. He was brought to Memphis where he was held incommunicado for eight months, exactly what you would do if you were not sure what the man might say if allowed to speak in public. But if others were involved in the killing of King, 
it would appear that Ray did not pose a danger, at least as far as telling secrets, because he didn't know much. But Ray did pose a danger, because if he went to trial, the evidence would have to bear up under examination, and the case against him might fall apart as his first attorney Arthur Haynes thought it would. And who knew what other witnesses might appear and what they might have to say? And if Ray were found not guilty, or worse still, if the case against him were shown to be a sham, where would that leave J. Edgar Hoover and the vaunted FBI who had run the investigation? If Ray had been set up, who had done the setting up? Who had allowed them to do it? And who had accepted and promoted the phony evidence? These questions threatened to absolutely destroy J. Edgar Hoover. Again, John Currington. Hoover and Johnson and Mr. Hunt all shared the same view that if James Earl Ray should go to trial, he could blow everybody out of the boat that was floating around out in the ocean there. So I think in the opinion of J. Edgar Hoover, Lyndon Johnson, and H.L. Hunt, that it was necessary for James Earl Ray to plead guilty to that where none of his testimony would be made public. According to John Curington, Hoover and Hunt were on the phone more often after Ray had been captured. The door between Currington's office and Hunt's office was always open at Hunt's insistence, so there wasn't much that happened in that office that John Currington wasn't privy to. One afternoon, according to Currington, after Hoover had been on the phone with Hunt, Currington was called into Hunt's office, whereupon Hunt made another phone call. Mr. Hunt called Percy Foreman one day, and uh, he told Mr. Foreman that he had a young lawyer in his office that had come up with a lot of ideas as to why James Earl Ray should enter a guilty plea in the killing of Martin Luther King. And the young lawyer was myself, and he asked if I came to Houston, would Percy Foreman visit with me and go over the theories that I had jotted down? And Percy Foreman agreed to do that. I left the next morning. Currington made the quick flight from Dallas to Houston, took a cab from the airport, and arrived at Foreman's office. He was not empty-handed. I had a briefcase with $125,000 cash in it. Mr. Foreman and I probably exchanged a few pleasures for two or three minutes, and I just simply stated to him that I'd jotted down 125,000 reasons why James Earl Ray should plead guilty to killing Martin Luther King and uh, would like to leave those reasons with him. And uh, Percy Foreman, without any comment, say, just uh, leave your briefcase. That was the extent of our conversation. Currington would say that the lack of any questions or conversation on the part of Percy Foreman felt spooky to him. He left Foreman's office feeling that this was a deal that had been set up well in advance. If I was just making an editorial type of comment, uh, in my opinion, I, I believe that uh, J. Edgar Hoover himself would have made a call to Percy Foreman and told him what was fixing to happen. This is a stunning story. According to Currington, he brings $125,000 to Foreman in exchange for the promise that Ray will plead guilty. What reasons do we have for believing him? First, it would go a long way to explaining Foreman's strange conduct toward Ray, pushing his way into the case and forcing out a pair of lawyers who were preparing an affirmative defense of Ray, then doing nothing on Ray's behalf, and finally putting Ray under extraordinary pressure to plead guilty while publicly pretending that was always the plan. And if that were not enough, 
Foreman then puts his name to an article in a national magazine assigning nasty, untrue motives for Ray in regards to the murder, such as what he was really trying to do was start a race war. At every turn, Percy Foreman seems to be acting in the interest of someone offstage. Would Foreman really take money and betray a client by secretly working for the other side? Well, as we heard in episode four, Foreman did that very thing. Just a few years after the King murder, Foreman signed up a client who had a conflict with Bunker and Herbert Hunt, the sons of H.L. Hunt, and then approached the Hunts and took $100,000 from them in return for getting his client to do what the Hunts wanted. It's all laid out in a federal indictment. So I think we now know how it was that James Earl Ray put in a plea of guilty when he really wanted to go to trial. It was arranged, paid for. He was forced into it. Foreman was simply not going to defend him, and the chief beneficiary of all that was J. Edgar Hoover. He was the one on the hook if the trial of James Earl Ray took a bad turn. In 1924, J. Edgar Hoover, at the age of 29, became the first head of the Bureau of Investigation, which later became the FBI, and he was still director of the FBI when he died in 1972. He had seen presidents come and go, and he had used his office to collect information on just about everyone, which made him the most feared man in America, unless, of course, you were with a mob. Though many wanted to, no president dared to replace the man. It was only after Hoover died that the Senate Church Committee was formed to investigate what they would call, quote, the criminal abuse of power by the FBI. Two years later, Louis Stokes, chairman of the House Select Committee looking into the assassination of Martin Luther King, read a statement of his own into the record that took the FBI's conduct to the very edge of murder. Should the committee take special note that the conduct of the FBI in this conspiracy of harassment of Dr. King was not only unjustified as policy, it was also illegal and unconstitutional. Did the conduct of the FBI contribute in any significant degree to the sequence of events that occurred in Memphis and led to Dr. King's death? In the MLK tapes, we have attempted to answer that question by presenting the stories of people who have told what they knew about the murder of Martin Luther King. No one had a complete picture. Each person only knew what he or she saw, heard, or did. We heard from police captain Jerry Williams, whose all-black security detail was not called to protect King on his final visit to Memphis. Fire captain Carthel Whedon, who on the day of the murder brought men with cameras and fancy ID up to the roof of the firehouse. Attorney Art Haynes, who had a witness who saw the package with a rifle placed on the street minutes before the shooting. Judge Joe Brown, who offered hard reasons why that rifle could not have been the murder weapon. Detective Barry Linville, who saw a bullet in near-perfect condition removed from the body of King, something that in no way resembled the pieces of lead the FBI would later offer as the death slug. Ronnie Lee Atkins, who told us how the shot was fired from the yard behind the grill where there was plenty of cover. Betty Spates, who saw a smoking gun brought in from that yard. And a lot of others with similar stories that did not fit with the official version of the crime. But even collectively, their testimony doesn't tell everything. Each is only a tile in the mosaic. 
and when they are all in place, the image is still incomplete. We don't know all the actors and the roles they played, but if you step back and look at the mosaic, you can see a picture. The murder of Dr. Martin Luther King was a planned event, and that fact was covered up by the people who were in charge of investigating the crime. And when it appeared that Ray's attorneys were really going to fight the charge in court and call into question the shaky evidence, something had to be done. So Percy Foreman was sent in at the last moment to wrestle the case away from Ray's attorneys and force a plea of guilty, which is precisely what he did and what he was paid to do. The evidence of this is overwhelming. As a nation, we choose what we want to remember. Each year on the third Monday of January, we celebrate the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King with a national holiday that bears his name. Newspapers and magazines publish flattering portraits and gush about what a great man he was, conveniently forgetting the awful things they said about him after he spoke against the war. Now they remember him, not as the traitor they once denounced, but as an American saint. But they never ask questions about how he died, and their pages are used to shout down anyone who does. Meanwhile, the man who used his public position to take massive bribes, who every day violated the law he was sworn to uphold, the man who tried to destroy King at every turn and finally helped to arrange his death, that man has a granite-faced building named in his honor in our nation's capital. For Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio, I'm Bill Claver, and this has been the MLK Tapes. Thanks for listening to the MLK Tapes, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. This podcast is not specifically endorsed by the King family or the King estate. The MLK Tapes is written and hosted by Bill Claper. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, with producers Trevor Young and Jesse Funk. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, with producers Jamie Albright and Meredith Stedman. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Cover art by Mr. Soul 216, with photography by Artemis Jenkins. Special thanks to Owen Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, The Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Envision Business Management, and Station 16. If you have questions, you can visit our website, themlktapes.com. We posted photos and videos related to the podcast on our social media accounts. You can check them out at the MLK Tapes. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, Please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello! 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.